Jen here with a quick update for new listeners. Watch with Jen began its life solely on Patreon, and while that's still the first place I publish new episodes, all of which you can listen to as soon as they drop for as little as a dollar a month, once they're unlocked to everyone, you will find them available to listen to here as well. Just a heads up if you wonder why I talk about Patreon so much for the first few shows. Thanks for listening and happy movie watching. Hey, this is Jen Johans at filmintuition.com or at filmintuition on social media and letterboxed. And this is Watch with Jen. I sure hope this finds everyone safe and sound and doing well and figuring out creative ways to get through this quarantine. I know it's super stressful, not only because of what's going on in the world, but also being limited in what we're able to do on an everyday basis, like not go out with our friends, not go to work or participate in life the way we normally do. So just know that everyone is in the same boat and it's been great to see how people are checking in on each other more reaching out to friends, family, and just making sure everyone's okay. I have yet to use Zoom. I know everybody keeps mentioning it every five minutes. I've just started to master Skype a little bit more, so it'll be interesting to see what happens once I start doing more interviews. So without setting up a Zoom watch with Jen thing right now, consider this me reaching out and checking in on all of you and making sure you're okay. I've run a survey over the past several days on my site to ask what type of format you'd like Watch With Jen to take once I bring some guests on my show. It's been cool to see. I think right now, as I'm recording this anyway, the consensus seems to be bonus episodes. I'm thinking probably Patreon locked only for a week or so before opening it up to everyone where we can just talk about whatever the other person is streaming, how they're doing right now, and just kind of have a free-flowing discussion on film, which should be fun. I'm also going to give everyone the opportunity to, if they prefer, just stick with the format and recommend like two or three movies we can talk about. From actors to authors, artists, filmmakers, freelancers, we have a really diverse group of people scheduled to be on Watch With Jen. I'm very excited to bring those to you. I also love the idea of not only going with one format or the other, the sort of free-flowing one or the sticking with the Watch With Jen, but also kind of hitting a sweet spot, a combination between the two, because I do have some people on who are specifically known for their ability to think outside the box and come up with these great out there pictures that many times I haven't even seen. So I'm looking forward to that. Maybe we can listen and then I'll watch one and report back. That would be fun too. So whatever style this winds up taking. I'm very excited and I think it will be a nice change of pace and I'm hoping I can deliver that for you. 
But without boring you to tears right now, let's just jump back into this week's five recommendations and see if we can get some new films in front of you because I'm sure you've been going from streaming service to streaming service wondering what to watch now. I know a lot of us suffer from overchoice or going through, especially on Netflix. I mean, I love you, Netflix, but come on. Seeing way too many options that just sort of blur together because none of them really look terribly appealing. So I want to find a way to weed out some of those titles. And one of the movies I am recommending today is a made-for-Netflix original movie that is not named The Irishman or Marriage Story. So... It's probably a little bit further down in your list. It came out in 2018, and it'll be fun to get that in front of you as well. So let's dive in. When New York Times film critic Frank S. Nugent reviewed our first film in June of 1939, he wrote that it's a merry jape, which deserves something more than farce classification. For although the theme of mistaken maternity is one of the venerables of farce, this treatment of it, written by Norman Krasna and directed by Garson Kanan and played by so many pleasant people, is too logical, too human, too humorous for outright farce. It is comedy, simple if not always pure, and we must call it one of the season's gayest shows. The film that he is referring to is none other than Bachelor Mother from RKO, and it is airing this Friday, April 3rd at 7 p.m. Pacific time on Turner Classic Movies. It is also then going to be available on Watch TCM, which is the TCM app, and you can also find Bachelor Mother on several of the streaming services for rent as well. One of my favorite comedies from the 1930s. The film was a big hit when it was released, but then it kind of fell by the wayside for years until Turner Classic Movies revived its popularity. And over the last several years, it's become sort of a Christmas staple. It does very well around Christmas time, but it's just a feel-good film, and I thought it's a lot of fun and kind of perfect for what we're going through right now when we need the distraction. It's also going to be airing on Friday right after they play Baby Boom, which has a similar theme and plot, and I thought those two went very well together. But for today, I just wanted to talk about Bachelor Mother. When Ginger Rogers, who stars in the film, agreed to do it, she was very reluctant and nervous about taking on the role because it was her first. She had just finished her ninth film with Fred Astaire, the story of Vernon and Irene Castle. The duo would get together a decade later for The Barclays of Broadway, which was their 10th and final film together. But this was going to be her first project after they parted ways. She wanted to branch out and do some more serious work that did not just depend on her skills as a dancer slash musical comedian. In the movie, Ginger Rogers plays... Polly Parrish, a sales girl in the fictional New York City department store, John B. Merlin and Son. She's been hired as temporary help for the Christmas season and shortly into the film receives a dismissal notice letting her know that her services will no longer be needed shortly. She goes on her lunch break 
and sees a person abandoning a baby on the steps of an orphanage, rushes over to save the baby when it looks like it's about to fall off the steps, and of course that's exactly when she is mistaken for the baby's mother herself, and as she carries the baby inside the orphanage, she sort of mindlessly gives her information, her name, her workplace, and cannot convince them or anyone else for the rest of the film that she is not the baby's mother. She gives the baby back and returns to work and later is called into the office of her employer and is assured that her job is secure. They assumed that she gave up her child because she wouldn't be able to provide for it anymore as a single mother and also return the baby to her. She tries to decline the baby again and is sort of shamed into accepting this child as if it were her own. And David Niven, who plays the son in John B. Merlin and Son becomes involved in her life. He goes to check on her later when she was going out with a friend to participate in a dance contest for money. So they manage to get Ginger Rogers back on the dance floor just for a brief little scene, which is very hilarious in the film. But that's the only dancing she does in the movie. The rest of it is straight comedy and she's delightful. David Niven, of course, grows more fond of her and the two become involved. And it's just a really enjoyable, quick, fresh comedy. A remake of a 1935 Hungarian film from Henry Koster and Joe Pasternak that was never screened in the United States. That film was called Little Mother. Bachelor Mother did so well that it was not only adapted for the stage countless times with Ginger Rogers and David Niven reprising their roles and Lucille Ball, a good friend of Ginger Rogers, also stepping into the role as Polly Parrish, but Bachelor Mother was remade, as many films from this era were, as a musical. It was turned into a 1956 musical called Bundle of Joy with Debbie Reynolds and Eddie Fisher. It's a Warner Archive title, which you can find on their manufactured on-demand DVD service. Garson Kanan, who directed this film, also directed some great comedies, including My Favorite Wife with Cary Grant, which is hilarious. You must check that one out. And he reunited with Ginger Rogers for Tom, Dick, and Harry, which is very funny. That's another one you can find through Warner Archive. He also became a screenwriter, or he worked as a screenwriter often. He penned The More the Merrier, which is a classic from this era, as well as two Tracy and Hepburn titles that we all know and love, Adam's Rib and Pat and Mike, just to name a few. Bachelor Mother was written by Norman Krasna, who again is another classic screenwriter. Krasna was an Oscar winner. He wrote a number of different movies. His bread and butter was in these mistaken identity farces, but he also branched out into other genres. He wrote Wife versus Secretary with Clark Gable and Myrna Loy and Jean Harlow, which is a riot. He also did Mr. and Mrs. Smith for Alfred Hitchcock. He wrote the film noir Clash by Night and White Christmas. And while the movie does sort of belong to Ginger Rogers, who showed once again, as she did in 
the Astaire Rogers movies where, of course, the famous quote is she did everything that Fred did except backwards and in high heels. She was the MVP of those movies as far as I'm concerned. I mean, I love Fred Astaire, don't get me wrong, and they were beautiful as partners together. But Ginger is the reason that I fell in love with those movies. She just lights up the screen. She has amazing comic timing. So it was really cool to see her use her skill as a comedian and also show a little bit of her dramatic side in this. But you have to give credit to David Niven as well. He's marvelous in this movie. He was chosen after quite a back and forth search The film had signed on multiple actors. It was supposed to be Cary Grant for a while, which would have been awesome. He was really good with Ginger Rogers and Monkey Business, which also starred Marilyn Monroe and came out many years later. And then after Cary Grant departed, it was supposed to be Douglas Fairbanks Jr., who Cary Grant starred in Gunga Din with. But eventually, David Niven, who had been just a supporting player for Samuel Goldwyn, was loaned out to RKO and received a lot of great feedback, a lot of great notices on his part here. Of course, this was 1939, and shortly after the film was released in June, he went back to England after Great Britain declared war on Germany in September of 1939. And we ran into somebody at home. It's said that they asked him where he'd been and he said he would been making pictures for a while. And the person didn't have any familiarity with film and asked him if it was like oils or paints or thought he was an artist of some kind. He is an artist and he shows it here and luckily he returned to the movies after the war ended. And while I am taking a little bit of a risk in selecting a movie that's airing on TV, when I saw that this one was playing and I also wanted to choose a classic every once in a while because I love old movies. I mean, I love all kinds of movies. So I hope that it'll appeal to some of you and you might find yourself surprised and if you want to explore more of Ginger's filmography please just get in touch. I could talk about her so much I could create a new podcast for it so don't worry I'm not going to do that but this is a great place to start if you're new to her work or you only know of her really because of her movies with Fred Astaire. It's always interesting when rival studios gravitate to similar material at around the same time. I don't know if scripts were being shopped multiple places or they all wanted to get their hands on something similar. Sometimes you'll have two World War II movies that are very similar coming out in quick succession or two time travel films. Well, back in 2006, it was the year of magic. Of course, there was Christopher Nolan's brilliantly crafted dark puzzler, The Prestige, which perhaps appealed to audiences on a more dazzling intellectual level. The one I gravitate to the most is Neil Berger's exquisitely photographed, painterly styled romantic epic, The Illusionist. 
which to me is a richly intoxicating, classically styled cinematic masterpiece. It was lensed by longtime Mike Lee collaborator Dick Pope, who received a well-deserved Oscar nomination for his amazingly expressionistic visuals. His cinematography in The Illusionist is heightened by a wonderfully fluid musical composition from the legendary Philip Glass. Basically, The Illusionist is a regal epic, and it appeals to people who love those old-fashioned movies, and that's exactly what this is. The film was based on Stephen Milhauser's short story, and it was written and directed by Neil Berger, who would later go on to make The Lucky Ones, Limitless, Divergent, and The Upside. And while it was based on fiction, The Illusionist did garner some real-life inspiration on both the controversial life of Austrian crown prince Rudolf, who was the only son of Emperor Franz Joseph, as well as the legendary magician and purported clairvoyant Eric John Hunnison, who was murdered by the Nazis in 1933. The film is playing a variety of places. You can find it right now on IMDb TV, Roku, for free on Vudu, and also on a subscription service I'm not familiar with called Flix Fling. Don't say that five times fast. In the movie, Edward Norton plays the magician named Eisenheim, who reunites with his childhood love, the Duchess Sophie, Jessica Biel, in turn-of-the-century Vienna, only to learn that she isn't his anymore. She is engaged to the vicious crown prince Leopold, played by Rufus Sewell. Nobody plays like the smarmy jerk better than Rufus Sewell. I mean, he just rocks it. He does the same thing in Tristan and Isolde and a variety of movies where it's kind of like the Bill Pullman back in the 90s where if Bill Pullman was in the movie, with the exception of like while you were sleeping, you knew damn well he wasn't going to end up with the girl he started with. Rufus Sewell kind of does the same thing in period films where she is not leaving the dance with the guy that brought her. You just know it. As soon as you see him, you're like, Rufus is going down. But this film uses its actors magnificently. It also stars Paul Giamatti, who matches the intensity of Edward Norton as the police chief inspector, who is both in awe and intimidated by the wizardry as Eisenheim's shows draw bigger crowds and continue to grow more elaborate. The Illusionist incorporates a humdinger of a twist about three quarters of the way into it, and it's one of those that makes you think back on everything you'd seen previously and try to figure out exactly what's going on so you can stay a step ahead of the characters or anticipate where they're going next. It's one of those that would play well, basically, to the whole family. There's, like, one scene of sensuality that I believe the movie might be PG-13. It's not too revealing or anything, so I think you'd be okay with maybe 11 or 12 and up, or you know your kids. When you look back on 06, all of the Christopher Nolan devotees, the film bros who you always 
see obsessing over Chris Nolan movies. And I mean, the guy has made some wonderful films, but there are other directors, guys. Come on. Um, So Nolan's movies kind of overshadow this era. If you say the magic movies of 06, everyone is going to immediately pivot to the prestige. Like whenever I bring up The Illusionist, other people are like, yes, but did you see The Prestige by Christopher Nolan? It's like, yeah, I did. And it's a great movie, but... The Illusionist is the one that I keep coming back to. It plays so well, like on Saturday nights when you just want a nice, thrilling, romantic epic that's just shot with such stellar craftsmanship. I mean, the movie, you could hang any one of the scenes up like a painting. In that respect, it reminds me of... Sleepy Hollow from Tim Burton, or Great Expectations by Alfonso Cuaron, which I will go to the mat about. I think it's a great movie. I know other people that absolutely despise it. Even Cuaron is like, why did I make that movie? But damn, it's just beautiful. And every once in a while, you just need one of those films. And The Illusionist fits that to a T. I think it's still as effective as it was in 06, and I really hope you enjoy it. Like the waves of the ocean that inspired so many of the Beach Boys' earliest hits, 2015's Love and Mercy, which you can find on Amazon Prime and Hulu, moves back and forth in time between two of the most pivotal decades in the life of its subject, Brian Wilson, who is played by Paul Dano in the 1960s, and John Cusack in the 1980s. The film is as multi-layered as one of Wilson's symphonic Pet Sounds compositions that likewise moves between multiple time signatures and keys. It's a phenomenal true-life tale that's also a wonderful labor of love from producer-turned-director Bill Polad, who made his directorial debut back in 1990 with Old Explorers and then switched to become a producer on such critically acclaimed award-winning works as Brokeback Mountain, A Prairie Home Companion, Into the Wild, Twelve Years a Slave, and The Tree of Life. He's the son of longtime Minnesota Twins owner Carl Polad, who, after his death in 09, the team was then taken over by Bill's brother Jim as the owner of the team, and Bill stuck to movies, and with something as wonderful as Love and Mercy, I'm sure glad he did. It's experimental, but it's still both palatable and accessible to viewers, more accustomed to the traditional extended flashback formula we often see in contemporary biopics. And while Love and Mercy may, to use another one of their lyrics, get around in its chronology, it never wanders out too far off the deep end. And I feel like in that sense, it learned a valuable lesson from the overly fragmented Bob Dylan opus, I'm Not There, from Todd Haynes, which was partially penned by Love and Mercy screenwriter Oren Moverman. Moverman wrote this film with Michael Lerner, and Moverman, of course, is a filmmaker in his own right. He also wrote and directed a movie you really must see called The Messenger with Woody Harrelson and Ben Foster, who's one of my favorite contemporary actors right now. He also 
wrote and directed Rampart, which is another one with Woody Harrelson in a very strong performance you need to see. Helping to ease the transitions in time in Love and Mercy so you don't really get too confused. Frequent Wes Anderson cinematographer Robert Yeoman infused the 60s set footage, which he shot on Super 16mm, with vibrant, nostalgic golden light to shower Wilson and the Beach Boys during this time period with, to use another Wilson lyric, the warmth of the sun. Yellow and goldish light, of course, is used a lot in film to sort of symbolically clue us in that we're in the past and also fill the scenes with nostalgia. We see it a lot in Once Upon a Time in America, the Godfather movies, just a lot of films when they bring us back into the past, we see a lot of yellow. Contrasted in Love and Mercy, with a huge shift in both color and camera. He abandons 16mm when he goes to the 1980s, which of course was one of the bluest periods in Brian Wilson's life when his mental health really went off the deep end and he was taken advantage of by his live-in doctor, played by Paul Giamatti, once again, the illusionist star. And again, we're contrasting that earlier gold with the blues and white cool tones that you would find of prescription pills. And the color and style changes make us acutely aware of the isolation that is felt by Wilson during this time. But interestingly, even though Love and Mercy is centered on Brian Wilson, who is just staggeringly well played by both Dano and Cusack, especially in his strongest work in years. The surprising heroine of the movie is Brian Wilson's then-girlfriend in the 80s, Melinda Ledbetter, who's beautifully portrayed by Elizabeth Banks. She, of course, helped liberate her future husband, Wilson, from his overly controlling doctor-slash-legal guardian. And from the one of the earliest scenes in the movie where the two meet in a Cadillac showroom to their tentative escape from one of the doctor's spies by diving into the same waves that Wilson had sung about decades before, given the role that love played in liberating Wilson, Mercy is thematically on par with the impressive, if more traditionally structured, Johnny Cash biopic, Walk the Line. And although I will fully admit that it plays much better to those like myself who are total Beach Boys nerds and have a greater frame of reference for details about the composer's past that are only briefly referenced in the film's dialogue, including some of the ones involving Brian's father. Paulette's sensitively drawn portrait, nonetheless, remains one of the best musical biopics that I've seen in quite some time. And when I saw that this was playing on both Prime and Hulu, I couldn't not recommend it especially because the Beach Boys and Brian Wilson's Pet Sounds, which is one of my favorite albums of all time, were in my mind right now because Wilson just tweeted a picture of the master tapes for the album, which 
are incredible to see. Your jaw just drops. See them all stacked up like that. Okay, I'll stop being a nerd about it. But the movie is really good. And I think even if you're not the biggest Beach Boys enthusiast, and that's okay, we can still be friends. No, I'm just kidding. But I think you'll still really, really respond to it just on a storytelling level or just as a film itself, because there's a lot here to really love. If you followed me on Twitter for any length of time, and of course know me in real life, you would know by now that there are a handful of titles that I will mention at the drop of a hat and with very little prompting. Of course, there's The Godfather, Moonstruck, The Limey, After Hours, and our next movie is definitely one of them. I am talking about Wonder Boys, which came out in 2000 from director Curtis Hansen, who has long been one of my favorite filmmakers. He is a man who was known in the 80s and 90s for delivering a really good thriller. Everything from the underrated The Bedroom Window, which you can usually find streaming on a number of services for free, through Bad Influence, which I wrote about recently and really love doing. In fact, it went over so well, some anonymous person sent me a movie that actually kind of goes with Bad Influence, just out of the blue, hoping I would write about it. So that was interesting, let's just say. Flattering, but a little weird, but hey, that's cool. And then Curtis Hansen also directed The River Wild, which I love. He's probably best known for L.A. Confidential, which is a phenomenal movie. And then in the 2000s, he started to explore his ensemble character drama pieces. I find them actually just as interesting, if not a little more, than his neo-noir thrillers. Wonder Boys, of course, is no exception. In Her Shoes is another one that I would highly recommend you see with Toni Collette and Shirley MacLaine and Cameron Diaz, who gives one of her career best performances in the film. Wonder Boys is probably best known for Michael Douglas, as well as Bob Dylan's Oscar-winning song, Things Have Changed. I'm a huge fan of Dylan, so of course I latched onto that right away. But if you're a writer, it really hits home. I actually wrote about how well it captures the creative mind for IndieWire a few years back. This is what I wrote. From its opening sequence, where insomniac Toby Maguire, who figures out his stories at night when he can't sleep, gets eviscerated by his classmates in creative writing class, to Grady Tripp's inability to stop writing his novel, Curtis Hansen's Wonder Boys gets everything right. Based on the book by Michael Shaben and brilliantly adapted by Steve Cloves, the film celebrates artistic camaraderie and the way that writers eavesdrop, observe, and create stories based on strangers, while also poking fun at the academic and professional jealousy that goes with the territory. A writer's movie where Descriptive dialogue says as much about the characters speaking as the people they are talking about. Wonder Boys is one of my all-time favorite films. And I still very much agree. It's a title that I actually screened and hosted in my screening series, so you will see that on my letterboxed list that I posted recently. 
The film is one of those rare movies that actually improves upon Shaban's book. Shaban's book is its own thing. It's dark. It's very funny, but also very weird and unsettling. And it has that whole meandering journey quality that I love about the movie. But the ending is completely different. There used to be a website around the, I would say the early 2000s, called Drew's Scriptorama. I don't know if any of you guys are old enough to know about it or nerdy enough to know about it, but somehow they got their hands on A Different Draft by Steve Kloves, and I read that before I saw the film. I actually remember when I read it. My brother and I had just gone to see Hannibal, and it scared the shit out of us. Uh, We got home, and First of all, we were like looking over our shoulder the whole way home and he went over to his house, which he had just gotten, and put up curtains like right away, like they had arrived and he hadn't put them up yet. He immediately did that and then called and we were like checking in on each other. It was really funny. And I needed some sort of comfort, so immediately went over to read screenplays because that's what I want to do, I suppose, and read Steve Kloves' draft of... Wonder Boys. And it was fascinating to see the way that the relationships between Grady Tripp, a college professor played by Michael Douglas, and the women that surround him were shaped from one draft to the next. I believe another draft was added later on that I did go back and read before I saw the final film. And I had read the novel. I'm a huge fan of Shaban. The Amazing Adventures of Cavalier and Clay is one of my favorite novels. And I did see him read from his work and give a discussion, answer some Q&A at an event that was put on by ASU. Unfortunately, I think only 20 people showed up and we were in this huge auditorium, so I was very embarrassed on behalf of Phoenix, but at least I was there and it was awesome. I loved the book, but I prefer the movie in this case, which almost never happens. It's interesting to see the way that they play on the various meanings of Wonder Boy. In the movie, Grady Tripp has a lot of things going on, honestly. His wife leaves him off screen at the beginning of the film. He's having an affair with one of his superiors, played by Francis McDormand, and the co-ed who is renting a room for him, played by Katie Holmes, is nursing a serious crush on the professor. He rebuffs her gently in the film earlier on than in the screenplay that I read the first time. There was more of a magnetic attraction between the two that was confusing, and I think it was good the way that that changed from one script to the next. But a huge part of the movie, actually the main thrust of the journey, involves Grady's unlikely mentoring of his prize student, played by Tobey Maguire, who is very troubled. He steals a priceless jacket that was worn by Marilyn Monroe when she married Joe DiMaggio. At the beginning of the movie, he is found by a trip early on after just getting lambasted by all of his classmates in a scene that's going to ring true for everybody who ever had a creative writing class. He finds him in the snow and he looks seriously depressed. And so Grady makes a decision that then leads to another bad decision and 
takes them on a one-of-a-kind, you're never going to guess what's coming next journey that is just driven by the performances of the entire ensemble. Robert Downey Jr. just steals every damn scene he's in, kind of like he always does. And the film, which I believe was shot at Carnegie Mellon, so it does have a very believable sense of community, also adds to the ambiance by its soundtrack, which is filled with Wonder Boys from Neil Young to Bob Dylan to Van Morrison, Leonard Cohen. It's an awesome soundtrack. I highly recommend that you pick it up. Obviously, I could sit here and talk about this movie forever, but I'm not going to ruin any surprises. It's funny. It's delightfully strange. And I think it will speak to not only writers and people who remember being at college or feeling like an outsider, but just anyone who enjoys one of those freewheeling adventure movies. They're kind of one of my favorite subgenres. It's also, I think, what draws me to After Hours. I sort of am attracted to the plot lines where stuff happens and people just have to kind of roll with it. That's honestly one of the most important things in my life as somebody who's had a lot of different things happen medically and you don't know what's going to happen from one day to the next. I sort of find myself looking for that quality in people, people who are able to just roll with the punches. And so Grady Trip is definitely my spirit animal, I should say. Like Dazed and Confused or other movies that take place in a limited time span, American Graffiti is another one. It's a great hangout movie. And coming right after Love and Mercy, you can tell I also am drawn to movies about artists or people being creative, and this is no exception. You can find Wonder Boys right now on Amazon Prime and Canopy through your library. I can't wait for you to catch a ride with him and Tobey Maguire and go on an adventure in Pittsburgh. Speaking of being creative, how long would you stick with a project before you gave up on it? Would it be two years? Five drafts? What are you thinking? Well, our next movie, which is Like Father, and it's available on Netflix right now, is a lesson to think twice before you ditch your creative project. It was written over the course of six years and 17 drafts by Lauren Miller Rogan, who shortly after the release of her first co-scripted effort for A Good Time Call, was dealt a pretty cruel hand when her mother was diagnosed with Alzheimer's. Somehow in the mix of it, she decided to turn the darkness into light and just write something funny that also does incorporate some topical issues as well. And that's what you get with Like Father, which was released the summer of 2018. That, of course, was a game-changing time for Netflix because they released a number of comedies and romances around that period that did just exceptionally well, including To All the Boys I've Loved Before. If you haven't seen it, believe the hype. It was very good. I reviewed back-to-back Netflix titles that summer. Like Father, I believe, was the first one, and it made a good impression on me. The film stars Kristen Bell, who, to use a romantic comedy trope, is left at the altar at the beginning of the movie because she chooses her phone and her work 
over her husband-to-be, she decides to leave a bunch of voice memos instead of walk down the aisle on time, which should be a pretty good sign she isn't that excited to get married to begin with. After the humiliation at the altar, she finds herself face-to-face with her estranged father, played by Kelsey Grammer, who has arrived for the wedding and doesn't leave town until they've had a chance to connect. Over a drunken night of commiserating over everything, they find themselves going on the cruise that Kristen Bell was supposed to take with her new husband. So now she is stuck on a cruise ship with her father and the two aren't the closest. She immediately begins to regress and go right for her phone and try to work or figure out ways to get off the ship. I, for one, am terrified of cruises. I don't know. They just seem like my nightmare vacation. I've heard too many people who tell me about the fires and the laundry room every five minutes and all the things that don't get reported to cops and I don't know man they just kind of wig me out. I like having my freedom too much so I'd want to be able to leave somewhere if I needed to or wanted to. While I think they're an awesome way to experience world travel. They're very price effective, especially for couples and families and anyone who isn't really scared of boats or has any of my weird hang-ups about cruise ships, of course, knock yourselves out. But they always kind of freak me out. However, the cruise ship setting and like father is crucial to the story that she is trying to tell. Had the two characters reconnected and found themselves in, say, Hawaii, well, they would have just gotten on the next available flight back to reality as soon as they sobered up. Now that they're trapped in close quarters on a vessel where they don't know anyone else and are constantly congratulated by strangers who just believe they're newlyweds because that's the cruise she was supposed to be on, Rachel and Harry, who are the names of our main characters, are just forced to interact. And like two people stuck on a desert island on a cruise ship in the middle of the ocean, Rachel can run, but she cannot hide. The other things that I really appreciated about Miller Rogan's script was she's smart enough to address some of the practicalities of their instant vacation right away, like the fact that they left without luggage. In most movies, they just would have had an unlimited supply of outfits that you would start to wonder where the hell they're coming from. But here she comes up with believable solutions for things. Her script is just so deft and she loves her characters, introduces us to a really fun supporting cast, including a budding family therapist who's one half of a gay couple who will just crack you up from the moment they enter the scene. Also, Lauren Miller-Rogan casts her husband, Seth Rogen. He's an up-and-comer. I think you might have heard of him. And he's very, very funny in his small role as a teacher who has a dalliance with Kristen Bell. And the other thing that I really dug is although although she is a workaholic and she does prioritize her phone and work too much, she isn't punished for being so. If this was one of those 
Hallmark romantic comedies where, you know, somebody goes out of town on a job and falls in love with someone in two days and decides they're going to uproot their whole life and quit their job and stop being a workaholic so they can just, like, bake cookies in Vermont or something. No, this doesn't do that. And while those movies are cute, this one doesn't punish her for being a workaholic. It just points out that she does need to find a work-life balance. And lastly, I really appreciated that Lauren Miller Rogan didn't feel a need to address her romantic situation right away. It was more important for her to just figure out what's going on in her life and adapt. She's a young woman. She doesn't need to just rush out and marry you know, some random dude she meets on a cruise ship. So I thought that was a really bold choice and a good one. So it's a bit smarter than some of the quote-unquote like chick flick entertainment that they like to wrap in a neat little bow for us. And I always really appreciate that when it's from a female writer-director who knows exactly the buttons that are usually pushed and finds a way to push different ones. So I applaud her for that, and I found the movie really enjoyable. I actually watched the screener of it and then showed it to somebody, like, right away, then recommended the film elsewhere. It was released in the summer, so it was the perfect sort of movie you would normally go see that they just don't make anymore. Hollywood doesn't make romantic comedies very much anymore, or just female-driven comedies, I should say, since this isn't a romance. So it was really nice that we could have one. Sadly, I know the phrase like, like it's on Netflix as a treat. I mean, it would be great if it was on the big screen. Of course, right now that is not an option, but it was just cool that somebody was making these movies for women. Smart movies and also ones that everyone can enjoy. And this fits the bill. Nobody plays a strong, independent-minded woman quite like Kristen Bell. She's a blast. One thing that's quite fun is you can't really cast a Disney princess in a movie where there is the chance that somebody's gonna do karaoke without making her do it as well. So Lauren figures out a way to work that in. And it's just a frothy nice movie right now. One of those, the equivalent of like cinematic sunshine. It just makes you feel good. So while it doesn't give you the vitamin D rays that the sun does, I think it's just the thing we need. And I hope you really enjoy it. I've seen a lot of lists lately of people's favorite comedies or comfort movies, and I decided to veer away from too much neo-noir this week or too many thrillers. Of course, you could argue that The Illusionist is a thriller, and it's a damn good one. Please watch it. But overall, I just wanted to provide some options for you that were reassuring or warm or funny films that could help you when you need the distraction or especially at the end of the day that seems to be from what I'm hearing the most stressful time which is totally normal because it's our biological clock we're also more tired and we've spent all day reading news stories or seeing disappointing press conferences or hearing too much on Twitter so we're kind of at our wits end by the end of the day and need some good distraction. Hopefully I can provide that for you or give you some options of things to check out. As always, you can find me on social media. I'm logging 
pretty much everything I'm watching over on Letterboxd. Sometimes I forget to update things for a few days. I made a joke, I think it was last week, about how my Letterboxd must confuse the hell out of people because I go from like Hong Kong movies to 40s musicals to neo-noir or kind of like trash from the 80s that I can't get enough of. Then I go to like Hallmark movies and mysteries that I watch with my mom hey, those mysteries are pretty darn good. Mystery 101, y'all. So I don't really log things sometimes as they're happening, but you can definitely check out my thoughts on some of those if you need more titles. And I also do some occasional tweet-alongs or odes to the various random things I watch on Twitter, as always. You can reach me there, and I'm very excited to begin recording this week some interviews that I look forward to sharing down the road as well. So I hope that you take good care of yourselves and your loved ones or whoever you're with, and if you're solo, reach out to people. It's important, even if you're not solo. I know right now you're probably all getting on each other's nerves a little bit if you're in a small confined space, so find ways to give each other some nice space and reach out to others we will definitely get through this so do hang tough and i'll be back in a week's time with more titles and another check-in as well if you're watching anything cool that you think other people would dig please leave a comment on this post on patreon so other people can read it and find out which movies that you think are must-watches right now. Maybe we can get a discussion going. I know other people have brought up the idea of maybe a follow-up on some of these movies that people do watch. I hope for the most part these movies have been helpful. I know you can't win them all. I'm not maybe expecting everybody to be as wild about like bachelor mother as they are easy money for example unless you're as weird as I am but hopefully for the most part you are finding out about some that either you want to check out or might sound interesting so maybe down the road we could have a discussion about some of these or do some follow-up I'm open to whatever obviously this is all new so be sure to hit me up with any thoughts take care you guys I am Jen Johans at FilmIntuition.com or FilmIntuition on social media and Letterboxd, and this is Watch With Jen.